one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the Talking Space Podcast. Do not touch that dial. Do not change your iPod. This is correct. This is Talking Space. We are back once again. We hope you enjoyed your summer break. We certainly have enjoyed ours, but now it's time for us to get back to work as this is Talking Space episode 806 for the week of Monday, August 8th, 2016. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. I'm not too sure about, about being happy about being away, but uh, you know, we're uh, I'm I'm back in the saddle and ready to rock. Awesome. Glad to have everyone back, including Mr. Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. I don't know if I've been away or not. I've kind of been here, there, and everywhere, but I'm ready to go now. Yes, it has been a crazy summer, and we've all been running around doing a whole bunch of things, including some of it getting content for you guys. But we'll get to that in just a little bit. First thing, obviously, over the summer, there's been a whole bunch of major launches. SpaceX has landed on barges as well as back on land once again. And they actually have two upcoming launches, and that's what we're going to focus on right now are some of the big launches that we have coming up towards the end of the summer and into the beginning of spring and actually a little bit further out for some of them. But first off, we have two major launches coming up in the next week after this episode gets released. On August 14th, there is currently scheduled a Falcon 9 launch carrying the JCSAT-16 communication satellite for a Japanese company. They have a two-hour launch window between 1.26 and 3.26 a.m. Eastern Time, which is 5.26 to 7.26 GMT. And a few days later, also from Cape Canaveral on August 19th, is a Delta IV rocket carrying AFSPC-6, which is an Air Force geosynchronous satellite that is scheduled to launch aboard a Delta IV that has a four-hour launch window from 12 to 4 a.m. Eastern, which is 4 to 8 GMT. We have a few other launches coming up. I'm going to actually skip over another one scheduled in August, and we'll get back to that in just a minute, because... I want to talk about one that's currently scheduled for September 8th, and that is the OSIRIS-REx mission. OSIRIS-REx is an asteroid sample return mission that is scheduled to again launch September 8th aboard an Atlas V 411 configuration, which means a 4-meter fairing, one single-engine Centaur upper stage, and the weirdest part of all, only one solid rocket booster. But that is scheduled for a two-hour launch window between 7.05 and 9.05 p.m. Eastern on September 8th. That is going to be so weird to see just a single solid rocket booster. 
Yeah, it is. It's a very rare configuration for uh, for uh, ULA, but I, I'm not exactly too sure when the last time they flew that was. But uh, uh, I believe the first time they flew it was in uh, 2006. So uh, it, it, from what you were saying, Sawyer, you saw some movies of, of past uh, uh, 411 config flights, and the 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 way the uh, the Atlas V kind of took off, it was just a strange. It looked a very. It was a very odd, odd path. You were you were saying for at least from a from a visibility standpoint, correct? Yeah, it, it looks kind of like it's wobbling off a bit. But you know, the beauty of their main engines that they use is that it has a large gimbal range, which basically means it can steer itself despite the one solid rocket booster that's kind of pushing it in that one direction. So it's very odd to look at. If you have not seen it. If you look on YouTube, you can find the launch of the Astra 1KR satellite from Cape Canaveral. That was using the 411 configuration, and it is freaky looking. Yeah, the those RD180s engines, though, it's one of the, I guess it's one of the beauties of the design that uh, that, that that's baked into them. Uh, the uh, the Osiris X mission too is is really going to be unique. It's it's we are really rond- not just rendezvousing with an asteroid, but we're actually bringing a sample of it back at, for analysis, and it's the first time we've been able to do that. Uh, we're going to be flying to an asteroid called Bennu, which will give. Earth a little bit of a close shave, I believe, in 2029. A lot of a lot of these websites that I've been seeing have been saying, "Oh, you know, you know, we're going to send a uh, satellite to a doomsday asteroid." No, not quite. Just you know, cool your jets. Everything's cool, um, but there is a little bit of a concern. So we're trying to find out what these things are made of, and it's not just this rock that we're concerned with, but it's all the big rocks out there, and just trying to figure out what these things are possibly made of. And so this way we could probably deal with them a little better if the Golden BB is heading toward Earth. So this is a really, really critical mission. Not only that, too, we're talking about material that's been out there since the origin of the solar system. So this is also peeling back the layers of time, if you will, to try to give us a little bit more clues as to how the the solar system was formed and how these these bodies may have been formed. So, again, exciting stuff. And uh, I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to this particular mission. Exactly, and part of that is even in the name, OSIRIS-REx, because it is NASA, is an acronym. It stands for the Origins, Origins, right there, Origins, like Origins of where we came from, Origins Spectral Interpretation Resource Identification Security Dash Regolith Explorer, OSIRIS-REx. They'll Let's be a, call it Rex. Right, there'll be a quiz after, ladies and gentlemen, don't worry. <laughs> Yes, so it is scheduled again to launch September 8th. It is supposed to arrive at the asteroid in 2018 with a sample coming back by 2023. And huge props to the Goddard Space Flight Center, University of Arizona, and all of them for working on this mission. And it'll be exciting, and at least one of us will hopefully be down there covering that launch, and we'll bring you all the sights and sounds and fun stuff that comes along with those launches a little bit later in the year. But that is a very exciting launch coming up. Speaking of 2023, which is when that's supposed to return, uh, there was a contract that was just given to the NROL satellites, which are the National Reconnaissance Office satellites. Uh, There are two providers that can launch military satellites right now. They are United Launch Alliance and SpaceX. And they awarded these 
without even basically considering SpaceX to the United Launch Alliance is what it sounds like, right, Gene? Yeah, I'm looking at a uh, Space News article by a gentleman by the name of Mike Gruss that was issued today, August 8th, as we record this. Uh, it basically states that uh, ULA has won the uh, the sole source of uh, this particular contract to launch not one but two Delta IV heavies between 2020 and 2023. Uh, this The awards, um, I believe, are part of a, an $11 billion uh, block-buy deal. Uh, with the uh, U.S. Air Force, and that the contract uh, uh, was awarded directly to them without competition. And usually when that happens, we usually hear you know, uh, SpaceX kind of start yelling and screaming and crying foul. This time they didn't. So I'm kind of wondering what's, what, what's going on. And is it something that we'll probably hear about during the week this week, or is it something that they're just saying, okay, no harm, no foul, go with it? So I know, too, there, there are some differences between Falcon Heavy and, of course, the, the fairing possibilities for uh, both Atlas V and the Delta IV. I know the fairings are, are much larger on the... Uh, on the Atlas V and the Delta IV, which is one of the reasons, by the way, Bigelow Aerospace uh, went with uh, ULA as a launch provider. This was a couple of months back. They announced that uh, they were going with the United Launch Alliance as a launch provider for their uh, expandable uh uh, habitats. So if they wanted to go ahead and start building a space station, they would use ULA exclusively for their launch services. And there was a huge, huge announcement over that. Both uh, Robert Bigelow and uh, Tori Bruno were up there fielding questions. But I'm kind of wondering, Sawyer, what do you think is going on? Is, is this a, a, a ding for Falcon Heavy? Do we think we're going to see that thing on the pad uh, in November? Or is this something that just... SpaceX just kind of said, well, okay, fine, you know, you won that round and, and that's it. Or is it just basically maybe Falcon Heavy just simply can't handle that because, again, because of the fairing size? I mean, part of it could probably be the fairing size. I honestly think one big part of it is that as of right now, the Delta Four is very proven. All of the Deltas and the Atlas rockets, they have a very proven record. The Falcon 9 Heavy has no record whatsoever. So we have no idea yet if it is reliable, how well it is, you know, affordability, because we haven't had a single launch yet. So at this point, you know, how can you certainly say, yes, we're going to go with them. We can guarantee you, National Reconnaissance Office, that your satellites will get into orbit if you don't even know when the rocket's going to be ready yet. That's my personal thought. Yeah, the um, I'm looking at the article here, and uh, John Taylor, a SpaceX, SpaceX spokesman, said in an email to uh, to Space News here, said, "quote These particular missions had very, very specific technical requirements. We le we worked very closely with DoD and the United States Air Force on this action, and decided jointly that it was the right approach." And uh, ULA and uh, NRO did not um, comment in time for uh, for the uh, publication of this particular piece. But um, so my bet is it we might be barking up the right tree here, Sawyer. It could be the fairing size, the and the size of the and the size of the uh, the payload. It could be because yeah, otherwise SpaceX normally would say, "Hey, wait a minute, that's not fair." But they haven't really said much about this, so. It could very well be, and I'm sure we'll find out 
as things go along, but I'm not so sure about the November 2016 launch date for the Falcon 9 Heavy at this point. I would love to see it, but I'm not going to hold my breath. I would bet money on 2017, but not 2016. Yeah, and uh, they also have got a little bit of a wrinkle there, too. I'll just interject this real real quick. Um, Space News also reported uh, last week that uh, – um, Inmarsat, which is a European company, they are trying to set up a European GPS uh, satellite network. And the final satellite of that uh, satellite network that they really wanted completed by the end of the year is being held up. And it's not due to a technical reason. It's actually due to the fact that the uh, the uh, the launch service provider, in this case SpaceX, does not have a bird ready for them. And they're looking at the, this thing I believe was supposed to be launching at the end of uh, – or, or I'm sorry, if I remember the, the article exactly. It was supposed to launch on December 1st. However, um, it didn't quite work out that way because of scheduling and so on. And now it's pushed further into 2017 because, again, they just don't have a bird ready. So Inmarsat is, shall we say um, – displeased at uh, at spacex at this point so uh, uh we'll be watching all of this pretty close uh again sawyer to to kind of reiterate too if i remember exactly we reported when falcon heavy was first announced back in back what was it, five years ago that uh, uh the first launch of that was supposed to happen at Vandenberg Air Force Base in 2012, toward the end of the year, and that didn't quite come to pass. So uh, we'll just keep our fingers crossed, and hopefully we'll see Falcon Heavy on Launch Complex 39A uh, in November as planned. But um, as you said, I'm going to go ahead and, and not bet the ranch on that. Exactly, and obviously we'll be keeping an eye on that and hopefully get to see that launch. So SpaceX, their Falcon 9 Heavy, may not be getting ready to launch for at least another few months, if not longer, but we do have another private company that's looking to get back into the game finally, and that is Orbital ATK. Their Antares rocket is scheduled to launch on its OA-5 mission, its first resupply mission to the International Space Station aboard its own rocket since the OA-3 failure. That is scheduled for August 22nd, with an almost instantaneous launch window at 5.59 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 21.59 GMT from Pad 0A back again at Wallops Island. This is exciting. Finally, we're getting all the players back in the game with their own rockets again. Yeah, Sawyer, thanks. And hopefully we'll be there to, to bring you the sights and sounds of uh, that particular launch as well. I'm hoping to, to be there to represent the program. Uh, and Indeed, this is a return-to-flight mission. It's exciting not only for the company Orbital ATK, not only for NASA, uh, a.k.a. you, the American taxpayer, to have now another capability up and running to get crew, I mean, to get uh, cargo, I'm sorry, to the International Space Station. But uh, this is exciting, too, for over here, the Mid-Atlantic region, because uh, having Wallops Island uh, being brought back online and having Pad 0A being brought back online, yeah, there's a little bit of pride here. I'm not going to go ahead and, um, and knock it. I mean, from... Uh, from here, um, actually from my driveway, you could actually see 
the uh, the launches from uh, from Wallops. So, and I'm up here in uh, in northwestern New Jersey. All I got to do is look southeast, and I could just see the the curvature some some moments after after launch. And it's exciting for this area. In fact, I'll be doing a, a talk a little later for a for a school group in September after I get back from uh, from uh, OA5 about uh, about Wallops Island and about what what they do over there. But um, this isn't as as you said, Sawyer. This is exciting. This this means that Antares is back up and running again. Antares has now been re-engined with the Russian-made RD181 engines. Uh, reason again for the Russian engines is right now we don't have an evolved expendable launch vehicle engine that foots the bill for Antares. We are working on some engines over here. Who knows in the future we may see an American engine on board Antares. I'm, I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that's the case. But uh, it will be exciting to see uh, Antares and, uh, and Cygnus take flight again from, uh, from Wallops Island. Uh, just as a as an aside, this particular um, vehicle is uh, named this this particular Cygnus vehicle is named for uh, uh, former astronaut and uh, naval well now late astronaut and naval aviator uh, Captain Alan Poindexter, who uh, unfortunately we lost some years back back in a uh, really really freak. Uh, uh, Accident. So um, again, it's a little bit of a tribute to him and to uh, to his accomplishments, not only as a naval aviator but also as a as an astronaut. Uh, for anybody that's uh, interested in learning more um, about the mission, just go to orbitalatk.com, and uh, there is a whole website there for um, for for OA5 and a whole whole press kit. But we are going to go ahead and. And be there if I be, if and be there and cover this mission and gosh darn it I'm really really looking forward to it. One of the highlights on this flight is the it will be carrying again a second Sapphire experiment. Now, folks, remember what the first Sapphire experiment was. This was an enclosed uh, small box where a fire was deliberately set on along this this small little uh, piece of cloth and it was slowly monitored. We will be repeating that experiment on on board OA5 as well. So we'll see if what we learned on uh, on the uh, uh, OA4 on the OA6 Cygnus uh, can be repeated on this particular one. So the more we study uh, the way fire works on board a uh, spacecraft, the more safer we can make our spacecraft. And this means, uh, again, if we're going to be going out to Mars and so on, we're going to need to know how fire goes ahead and behaves on, uh, on, in an enclosed area. And the Sapphire experiments are designed to go ahead and shed some insight into that. So that will be a repeat of the OA6 experiment. And uh, again, just as a proof to, to make sure that all of the data that we got from that is is sound. I believe they're also going to be sending up a couple of more of those experiments as well in the not too distant future. So again, this is something to uh, to look forward to. I believe also, that in addition, there will be some new uh, 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 there will be a new uh, nano rack deployer uh, that will uh, that's set up to uh, release Spire CubeSats uh, used for weather forecasting. Um, there's also some uh, secondary payloads on board, um, so that will also be uh, some with some experiments that will be conducted 
after the Cygnus departs uh, ISS. So, uh, again, this is an exciting mission. It brings Antares back online. And, I, I, you know, coming from the Mid-Atlantic, I'm going to go ahead and wear my pride on my sleeve for a little bit. This is a big deal uh, for us for from a pride standpoint. So I'm I'm really, really eager to see this bird go. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all are. It's been a few years now, and we want them to succeed because that means the space station succeeds. And so it's going to be really interesting to finally see it get back off the pad and hopefully get them going again. Because obviously their Cygnus spacecraft has launched twice aboard the Atlas, but now it's finally launching aboard the Antares, which this time will be launching with two RD-181 first-stage engines and a Castor-30 XL second stage. Yep, Castor thirty is built by uh, by the by the company, uh, I believe, Orbital ATK. So uh, again, it's it, it's still going to be exciting to to see um, the reborn Antares fly. I and mean, I, I, Sawyer, you 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 and I and uh, uh, Kat Robeson, who's not here tonight, uh, and uh, uh, Cassie Tamanini, we're all kind of bunched up together covering what was the uh, you know the ashes essentially of the orb 3 mission and to see this thing go um back at home base again from uh, from wallops is just going to be i mean i'm i'm getting goosebumps thinking about it i'm sorry if i i sound corny or something like that but it's uh or 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 kind of like fanboyish i i do apologize but it's it's still from it's still a big source of pride here here in this region Good day. This is Gene McCalka hopping into the time machine. We interrupt this podcast recorded on Monday, August 8th, 2016, with some breaking news from today, Wednesday, August 10th, 2016. Orbital ATK announced during its second quarter results conference call that it is delaying the return to flight of its Antares booster, carrying the SS Allen Poindexter OA-5 Cygnus cargo craft until no earlier than mid-September. Here's Orbital ATK's Chief Operating Officer, Blake Larson, with details. First, in May, we successfully completed a 30-second on-pad hot fire of the Antares rocket that tested the rocket's modified first-stage core and two liquid-fuel RD-181 engines, as well as the launch pad infrastructure at Wallops Island, Virginia. Simultaneously, the company has been conducting final integration and checkout of the flight vehicle that will launch the OA-5 mission to ensure that all technical, quality, and safety standards are met or exceeded. Due to a variety of interrelated factors, including the company's continued processing, inspection, and testing of the flight vehicle at the Wallops Island launch site and NASA's scheduling of crew activities on the International Space Station in preparation for upcoming cargo and crew launches, Orbital ATK is working with NASA on a launch window in the second half of September. This would be about one month later than previously communicated, and a more specific launch date will be identified in the coming weeks. The extravehicular activity or spacewalk that Mr. Larson briefly spoke about is scheduled for August 19. Two NASA astronauts, the current ISS Commander Jeff Williams and Flight Engineer Kate Rubens, have been given the task of installing the first of two international docking adapters on the ISS to prepare the orbiting facility for the arrival of the Boeing CST-100 Starliner and the SpaceX Crew Dragon commercial crew vehicles, which are currently under development. It should be noted, too, that earlier in the day today, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, announced on their website that they were also delaying 
the HTV-6 cargo craft that was scheduled to launch on October 1st due to what JAXA described as a, quote, slight leak during an air tightness test, close quote. A new launch date for HTV-6 has not been determined as of yet. So, it's better to be on the ground wishing you were on orbit than in space wishing you weren't. Talking Space still hopes to be at the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport located at NASA's Wallops Island Flight Facility in Virginia to bring you the sights and sounds of the Antares' return to flight launch in mid-September. We now return you to the recorded podcast from Monday, August 8th, 2016. Because everybody thinks they associate spaceflight with places like, you know, the Kennedy Space Center, and justifiably so, or they, or Vandenberg Air Force Base or some far-off place like that. Nobody looks a couple of hundred miles, you know, five-hour drive away. And uh, from from where you live here and uh, where I live in, in New Jersey, nobody thinks that. Nobody puts those those things together. But now they can. And to me, that that that's exciting. And it's something, too, that I think will inspire kids all over the place in this area. I mean, to, to, for a, a um, you know, a middle school to go outside, look up in the sky and see this thing arcing above you and saying, yes, that's going to the International Space Station and. If you're, you play your cards right, that's something you can get involved with and something you can do. So from a STEM standpoint, it works. It works wonders. Oh, yeah. And it's amazing how many schools and those types are getting involved with the International Space Station and its science. As I learned when I went to the International Space Station Research and Development Conference 2016, this year held out in San Diego, California. How's that for a transition? Pretty good, huh? I set you up for that one, sir. <laughs> I was hoping to take the bait. <laughs> Swing and over the fences. All right. So the International Space Station Research and Development Conference, in case you're unaware, is held pretty much every year, put on by multiple organizations, primarily CASIS, the Center for the Advancement of Science in Space. The main focus is to get all of the players involved with the International Space Station, launch providers, scientists, people that get experiments flown on the space station, educators, to get them all together and get everybody connected with the International Space Station, find new ways to get people involved and to get science experiments up into space. So this was a great year for it. There was a whole bunch of people there. I could probably spend more than two episodes just going over it, but I am going to condense it to some of my favorite moments, at least. One of those was the main talk that they had. It featured the Kelly brothers, Scott and Mark Kelly, as well as Dr. Sanjay Gupta as the moderator. Included with them also was the flight crew that helped during the year in space mission, helped monitor his health, and are now doing the experiments afterwards to try and figure out the effects of space flight. Besides the fact that the two of them together in the same room is one of the most hysterical things you'll ever see, it was an amazing panel and yes they were joking about you know how their eyesight was bad afterwards and you know of course they're brothers from new jersey so you can only imagine how uh, entertaining they were and they kept making jabs at each other all in fun and a lot of laughing but a lot of good science they were talking about too you know talking about wanting to continue on with nasa how some of them probably would if given the opportunity but obviously need a little bit of a break uh, they talked about a few other funny and serious things. One funny one 
that I could think of was when they were talking about interviewing to be an astronaut. So I forget whether it was Mark or Scott who went first, but apparently they didn't have a suit to wear for the astronaut interview. So he has to borrow his brother's suit. And so he did. And he wore that for the interview. Then his brother, the one who borrowed the suit, you know, or who lent him the suit, was then also asked to come down to an interview from NASA. Now there's the problem of, well, can't go down wearing the same suit as my brother. They're going to think we're crazy or that we're the same person just twice. So he's like, you got to buy me a new suit. He's like, no, I don't. And so apparently that suit is the only one that has gotten two astronauts a job. That's was, too good. There, that one was uh, a very entertaining story. Cause, you know, obviously they were concerned that they're twins. They might think that they're the same person. Hey, Mark, do you remember during um, um, SES-134, the going joke was that uh, if if the Kelly brothers did fly together, because because of the delay, I don't think they were able to do it. But I think the, the, the going joke was that, you know, they were going to swap spots and nobody was going to really notice. That would have been interesting. <laughs> exactly. Uh, another interesting thing when, you know, asked of, you know, uh, you know, the greatest challenge that they faced when going up in space, especially for a year in space mission. Basically, they said that their number one worry was not about themselves or about, you know, extra exposure to radiation or anything. The greatest challenge, they said, was worrying about if something happened to their loved ones back at home, their kids, their wife, their family. Because when you're up in space, you can't just say, oh, no, something terrible happened. I need to come down doesn't work like that. You've got a job to do, and you've got to stay up there the whole time unless extreme circumstances. So that's what they were worried about. And in fact, they talked about how, you know, back in 2011, when Scott was on the space station, when Mark Kelly's wife, Gabby Giffords, was shot. And they talked about that, and apparently, you know, he talked to him every single day on the phone just to check in. And as much as he wanted to be there and help out with the family... He couldn't do anything because he was in space and he was spending his six months up there at the time. So that was really interesting to hear them talk about that. The other entertaining thing was uh, apparently they were talking on the phone pretty much every single day they talked on the phone. At one point, you know, he was just talking to his brother while he was walking down the streets of New York. And Sanjay Gupta asked, you just talk to him every day just by cell phone on the streets of New York? He's like, yeah, of course. So, you know, could you imagine just seeing him walk down the street and not know he's talking to someone in space? That'd be pretty entertaining. Yeah, and if I remember, Sawyer, too, the ISS does have a telephone number, and it is a Houston exchange. Yes, it is the Houston area code. <laughs> you got to wonder, do they get the, uh, the spam phone calls, too, in space? <laughs> oh, that would be funny. Oh, my Lord. I could picture the telemarketer. I could yeah, picture the course. telemarketer. I could picture the, the telemarketer now. Oy. <laughs> what was Along those lines, what was really funny is um, apparently at one point, you know, Mark had been going on, on a trip and he hadn't been home for three weeks. So uh, he was on the phone with Scott, who was doing his year in space. And uh, they were talking, and he was telling him that, you know, he was going on this trip and that he wasn't going to be home for three weeks and how long that was. And then he stopped and remembered who he was talking to. <laughs> yeah, really? His brother who's spending a year on the International Space Station. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, my favorite was, and I'm going to quote this exactly. He said, uh, I forgot. He said, I forgot who I was talking to for a minute. He said two words, and the first one started with the letter F. I have a feeling it wasn't fudge. <laughs> I have a feeling not either. He did not elaborate, but I'll let you use your colorful imaginations at home on that one. So it was interesting also talking about the twin study. They had his flight surgeon come up and other people that were doing research along with this. And the interesting thing is it's going to take probably another year or two before we get any scientific you know, papers published on this. And there's a few reasons for that. One is astronaut privacy. Is This is their personal medical information that they're studying here. So they have to run everything by them and make sure that it's okay to release that information publicly. The second thing is, is that most of the experiments are still on the space station. So a lot of his blood and tissue and urine samples and all that, they're still in space. They haven't come down yet because Dragon only has so much down mass that you can bring back. So a lot of it's still up there waiting to return. So we may not get a lot of it back until all of the samples come back. So we're probably looking another year or two until we can get some basic data coming out of it, at least in paper form. Yeah, again, but that's that's not really unprecedented when you look at uh, scientific research, especially scientific research of this magnitude. Uh, you want to make sure that you've got all the I's dotted and T's crossed and making sure, too, that um, all the all the data that you have is in good shape because we're talking about information that theoretically can be used to support individuals long-term on, say, a, a flight to Mars or or even longer. So we want to make sure that we've got all our I's dotted and T's crossed from a science standpoint and, and making sure the thing's right. So, you know, again, it's it's not all that totally unprecedented. Right. It's just you've got a year's worth of samples, and you can't get all of them back, you know, remotely. Some of it you have to bring back to the lab. So part of it is taking the time with that. The other interesting thing was how the twins experiment came about. Because, you know, when they announced that he was going to be doing the year in space before they got to the press conference, they were saying, you know, you're going to be doing this and answer all these questions. And he asked, he said, what if anyone asks if they're going to do any experiments with my brother? Here's the thing. There's a law that says that an employer is not allowed to ask you to do any, you know, to give any DNA samples or to study your DNA makeup unless you ask which they couldn't do anything until Scott said, oh, what do I say if they're doing any studies with my brother? They said, none yet. By the way, would you be interested? Hmm. So it's interesting how they had to go about doing that. Yeah, that is, that is kind, of, kind of curious. Again, you, you want to be within the letter of the law, so you, know, you want to stick to that. Exactly. And it was very interesting just seeing, you know, some of the talks that were going on and watching the reactions of some people. So Robert Bigelow was there, and it was interesting watching his reactions to some of the talks, especially after everything, you know, with the inflatable module. And there were some people who were saying some things that may have been a little bit against his uh, company and Blue Origins and all that and Bigelow and all those kind of companies. So it's very interesting watching some of these people's reactions during these talks. Could you articulate about, you know, without naming any names, Sawyer, could you articulate a little bit about, about what the uh, 
what what the reservations people had with with the uh, uh, the expandable modules because we are you know we're testing Beam right now on on uh, on the International Space Station. We had a little bit of a glitch getting that thing open, but we managed to go ahead and kind of sit back and punt and 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 get that thing inflate you know expanded fully. I know I don't want to say inflatable because Robert Bigelow hates that. Um, expandable, yes. Yeah, we got to stick with the word expandable there. Um, so, uh, sorry, but without any naming any names and and shining any ugly lights on anybody, can you can you kind of uh, expand a little bit about what 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 the cons were? I know what the pros I mean, are. I can. It was live streamed. You don't have to take okay. my word for it. You can, you know, if the live streams are recorded, try and watch them back. But a lot of it was came out during the uh, discussion with Tori Bruno and Frank Culberson. Okay. Uh, Tori Bruno is the president and CEO of ULA, and Frank Culberson is with Orbital ATK. Right. So obviously they said some things up there that may have not been great to other potential launch providers or commercial providers. So it was just – I don't want to delve too much into it. If you look through the hashtag ISSRDC, you can find some of it. Yeah, I know because uh, – I know um, uh, Orbital ATK is also has their own – uh, their own ideas for uh, for the Cygnus spacecraft, where they they're they're talking about taking a few of the um, uh, a few of the Cygnus uh, modules and sort of connecting them together and creating their own little little uh, little space station there too. So they're kind of although they're 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 you know they're they're going to be competing against Bigelow, but the in that respect because I believe too NASA's got a uh, uh, I guess say a, a contract out to uh, to study different ways and different methods that uh, may be used to uh, to create maybe a, a a station between the Earth and the Moon or over at a Lagrange point or something along those lines. Uh, and both, I think, Bigelow and Orbital ATK are, are participating. Um, they're kind of competitors in that contract. Yeah, it was uh, it was very interesting. I'll I'll leave it at that. If you want to watch it, it's online at issconference.org. Click on the resources button. You can watch all of the talks. Some of the things that you won't be able to see on those videos were the companies and people that were there. Marshall Space Flight Center had some displays. Uh, all the major launch providers had displays there, although they weren't always manned. Like ULA's wasn't manned pretty much at all. Uh, SpaceX was pretty much non-existent. Um, they had the Veggie experiment. They had the ground test model there for Veggie. Uh, they had EarthCam, which is a citizen or is a uh, student science project that allows students around the world to request images from the International Space Station, and they do that about five or six times a year. So everyone got to request pictures from space. Uh, there's Aris, which is the amateur radio for the International Space Station. Uh, all of these people were there. The one that I found the most interesting to talk to was talking with the people from Sierra Nevada. If you don't, if you don't recognize that name, Sierra Nevada is the one that's creating the Dream Chaser, basically the mini space shuttle. They were originally creating a manned version, but after they fought and lost on their contract with NASA for commercial crew... They fought to be a part of the commercial cargo program and won. 
and are now designing a commercial cargo version of their Dream Chaser. They had both models there. And it was interesting hearing a little bit about each of them. We'll start with the cargo one. The cargo one will be able to land back on a runway, preferably the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, it will have a pressurized segment and an unpressurized trunk. That sounds familiar. <laughs> Uh, but it will have both pressurized and unpressurized segments. Unlike if you've ever seen the pictures of the all-white sleek one, this will be completely black. No windows. Doesn't really need them anymore. Uh, or at least no major windows for crew or anything to look at. Uh, we'll have a whole bunch of storage. It will launch aboard an Atlas V in a 402 configuration, which has never been launched before. So that'll be unique. But they will be launching it on an Atlas V, they said. Um, and when I asked them, so what's going on with the manned version, they said, well, right now we've been focusing all of our efforts on the unmanned and it has been put on for right now, a permanent hold. We will look back at it in a few years, but for right now it is on a permanent hold. They had two models at their table, one of the unmanned, one of the manned. They auctioned off the manned one in a raffle. Basically, it was free. You just had to drop in a business card, and they picked someone out, and they got the model because they don't need it anymore. So without saying it, they are basically saying the manned version of Dream Chaser for right now is dead. I found that really interesting. Well, it, it, it's not maybe not you know, I don't want to sound like that guy from, you know, the old guy from Monty Python and, and the Holy Grail on, in the cart going, I'm not dead. But um, it, it, it's pretty darn close. Uh, we will, I guess we'll just have to see what the future brings as far as um, as as far as uh, uh, as far as Dream Chaser goes, because I know the U.N. had and I don't know sorry, if this was was talked about over there but i know the un was kind of interested in looking at dream chaser and looking at the piloted version so uh yes they did talk about right. that they said that's what they're banking on right now is that you know they want to be that global provider for the united nations right. and so they're hoping to be the manned launch provider for united nations and they said obviously they're still working on that it's not definitive yet but that's where in a few years, they hope to see the future of the man dream chaser. But again, for right now, they are putting production on it on a very long hold while they work on getting their commercial crew vehicle ready to go. And my bet is, Sawyer, they'll probably learn a lot from that. Uh, com once they get the commercial cargo vehicle going, they'll probably learn a lot, You know, not only in designing the commercial cargo version, but also flying it. I mean, let's not forget the Dream Chaser was initially designed to be an autonomous vehicle should you know somebody become incapacitated. It could fly itself. And uh, yeah, so I'm sure, too, that a lot of what they're going to learn from the commercial cargo uh, thing will be baked into the, uh, the possibility of using Dream Chaser for a crude version for the United Nations. So fingers crossed on, on that front. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of sad that we had to, we had to uh, kiss the piloted version goodbye for a little bit, but it sounds like it's – it's not dead. It's just kind of dormant for a while. We'll just have to see what happens with it. So not dead yet. You're not dead. 
But it was very interesting to hear about that. And again, I highly recommend you go on to ISSConference.org, take a look at day one, day two, day three at some of the sessions, watch the keynotes with the Kelly brothers, uh, watch the one with Peter Diamandis, who hasn't done a space conference, he said, in almost 10 years. So it was interesting to hear him talk about that. I'll save that for you guys to go online and check out the videos. There are so many great talks on there. It was an amazing experience. Uh, you can check back through my Twitter account. I posted a whole bunch of pictures and information through the talks as well. And that's at the NASA man. So go ahead and take a look at all those. And it's an amazing event. Next year it'll be in Washington, D.C. If you can go, definitely go. All right. So while we're sticking with Dream Chaser and how they may not be dealing with their commercial crew, we do have a little bit of an outlook, not so much an update, on the future of the commercial crew program. Right, Gene? Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, last, uh, but, uh, not last week. Yeah, it was last week, the end of uh, end of July. Uh, the NASA Advisory Council uh, had their week long meeting, and uh, to set this up a little bit, uh, the National Advisory Council is made up of uh, individuals, uh, either former NASA or uh, individuals that have distinguished themselves in their areas and made contributions to spaceflight. And uh, their purpose is to go ahead, take a look at what NASA's doing, assess what they're doing, and give NASA advice at least as far as how they should be moving forward in certain projects. And it's up to NASA too, and I believe NASA's compelled actually to respond to what the uh, the NAC findings are and and how they are going to go ahead and respond to all of this. Um, one of the uh, the subgroups of that uh, was uh, the uh, the interim head was uh, uh, a name that's known to this audience, a gentleman by the name of Wayne Hale. Um, this was the uh, Human Exploration and Operations Subcommittee uh, that met uh, during that week. And, well, one part of their, their charge was to go ahead and take a look at how things were progressing with the commercial cargo pro program and the commercial crew program. Now, the group decided, you know, to take a look at the, uh, to give a really good, uh, hard assessment of where we were with commercial crew because that, well, as we know, is, is kind of critical. Here we are. It is, uh, by my calendar, 2016. Uh, it has now been five years since uh, the space shuttle has uh, permanently steered into harbor, and uh, all of the birds are now sitting in museums. And for the record, it was five years between um, the, uh, the Apollo uh, program, the last Apollo mission, which was uh, the Apollo-Soyuz test flight in 1975, and uh, STS-1, the first flight of Space Shuttle Columbia, in uh, April of 1981. So, you know, we've got about five years. Uh, it now has been longer than that, um, and we are talking about, now grant you, we are talking about developing three new launch vehicles. Uh, we're talking about developing um, Orion, and we're talking about developing the Boeing uh, CST-100 Starliner, and we're talking about developing the uh, SpaceX Crew Dragon. So we're talking about developing three vehicles all at once. Uh, well, the um, to get back to the uh, human 
Exploration and Operations Committee, uh, they had some rather interesting words about where we were with uh, the commercial cargo, I mean, the commercial crew program. Now, we know that both uh, vendors, both SpaceX and Boeing, are a little bit behind the eight ball on, on development of their vehicles. Uh, although Boeing, I think, uh, announced uh, at uh, some point these past couple of weeks that they think they've solved a couple of design problems and are moving forward. However, one finding that uh, uh, they, they made, uh, or should I say the committee made, and I'll, I'll, I'll just read it here, because it was somewhat, well, a little bit on the ominous side. The, uh, to read off here, the Human Exploration and Operations Committee is concerned about the possibility of a gap in the ISS transportation for NASA crew. Current schedules of both commercial crew program providers show completion of certification in time to allow for crew rotation to the ISS in 2018. However, here's the ominous part. There is very little margin. Human spaceflight development programs invariably suffer schedule slips due to their technical complexity. The integration of commercial providers into government service adds further obstacles to the commercial crew program. It is therefore prudent to assume delays in post-certification missions from today's schedule. Since NASA has purchased Soyuz seats only through 2018, any delay of the commercial crew program operational capability beyond 2018 will result in the inability to send NASA astronauts to the International Space Station until one of the commercial crew providers can complete certification. Due to the long lead time required to procure Soyuz seats, a decision must be made by the end of 2016, this year, folks, to guarantee access to the International Space Station in 2019, or NASA may be forced to reduce or possibly eliminate its commercial crew, its, com, its crew complement, I'm sorry, on board the International Space Station. Long story short, if we don't get our act together and we get this going by 2018, we could be looking at um, a essentially a stoppage of U.S. presence on board the International Space Station, a facility that you, the U.S. taxpayer, help really, really significantly build. You guys can lose access to that or full access. Yes, there are some experiments that can be operated from the ground. But in order to go ahead and operate the station fully, you need a U.S. presence there. And I believe, too, uh, if, if memory serves, there was some discussion about getting commercial, uh, you know, the commercial crew folks up there. And the discussion was about Soyuz availability. And I believe by law, NASA cannot go ahead and purchase any more uh seats on Soyuz past 2019. So a a new law would have to be crafted or a colliery or some sort of, you know, waiver from the United States Congress would have to be required if we were to purchase more seats uh from uh from Roscosmos to launch um to launch crew. 
So I don't want to say we're, we've got our back up against a wall here, but we've talked about this before on this program a little bit. And, you know, we've, we haven't really fully robustly funded the commercial crew program until very recently, and I think now it's showing. So we've really got to get our act together with this. I don't want to say there's a lot of pressure on Boeing. I don't want to say there's a lot of pressure on SpaceX. But, uh, Sawyer, as you and I were talking um, during the uh, uh, during the pre-show, uh, the, our backs are, are up against a wall, and we kind of put ourselves in this position. Yeah, it's really an a bad spot that we've kind of put ourselves in and a lot of it is funding and all that kind of stuff but you know i don't think they'll ever let it get to that point where we get to 2018 or 2019 and we don't have a way to get to the space station i know a lot of these companies are hoping to have their stuff ready by 2018 some have pushed it to 2019 i believe but you know within those years we will hopefully have launches going to there and if not we still need that Soyuz. We always need a backup. And plus, the more ways you can get to the space station, the better. Especially as NASA looks to up its crew from, you know, especially as they look to increase the crew aboard the ISS from six to seven. To do that, can't keep everyone on board a Soyuz. Got to have some other vehicle to get people up and back. But it's going to be very interesting to see where that goes, and especially now that NASA is going to have to respond to this. I'm very interested to hear what they say. But some law is going to have to change to allow us to buy it past 2018, especially if we're looking to keep Space Station till 2024. Yeah, and we're paying right now, I think it's, what, 80, $81, $82, $82 million, excuse me, a seat? On Soyuz, when we first started this this merry-go-round, it was like in the in the in the sixty million range. So I'm sure too uh, the, the Russians are going to kind of say, "Yeah, okay, fine, you can have it for ninety. Uh, hey, Mark, I didn't, I didn't. What do you? What are your thoughts on all this? I was having to rewind the uh, memory tapes. It seems like several years ago, I said that uh, the Russians should keep raising the price and make it astronomically high. And I don't know that I said this exactly, but eventually we'd get around to doing what we should have done in a little bit quicker. Yeah, I don't really care. <laughs> Not that you were right or anything, but... <laughs> the, the, well, you know, the ISS has got a limited lifetime. It's going to go away eventually, so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is how much it costs you know, NASA and taxpayers. Again, I looked up the historical numbers. In 2015, it was only 70 million. Now it is 81 million in 2016. Of course, we're talking four flights in 2018 at this point. But about three years ago, they had set the price at approximately 70 million dollars a seat as of 2013. They kept that price about the same, upping at 72, 74. Now it is 81 million dollars per seat, according to NASA's numbers. And again, sir, this is the only boat that we've got going to the International Space Station. It too is aging. I mean, we we keep 
updating it a little bit. I mean, the the recent version of Soyuz has some significant upgrades, but you know, it's it's an old bird, and it, it, you know, there there comes a time where you just have to go ahead and and, and cut your losses and and move on with, with with the new one. But the other thing too with this is it's only one one vehicle that can get us to low Earth orbit right now. And it, it's still kind of, I don't know, it, 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 it's putting all of our eggs in one basket again, and, and that's wrong. And I'm hoping maybe we will learn from the mistake and uh, just spread things around. The, the game plan for commercial crew looks like we, we've kind of learned that because we have two providers, essentially. SpaceX has just gotten their second contract to launch crew. So... Um, We'll we'll keep our fingers crossed, and hopefully we've learned something from this, and and won't put ourselves in the in the position where we're we're relying on an external source for uh, for access to space. I mean, this is just ridiculous. You know, I, I'm this I'm just speaking for myself, but it's just ridiculous. Yeah, we know how well that went last time. Just again, rewinding back to my favorite two episodes in 2011. In 2012, where we talked about, were you know the era of Soyuz and you oh, know, era of reliability, and then yep. a few months later they had an unmanned Soyuz failure. I yep. still that always comes back to mind, and how we basically said, "I told you so." We said it first, although we were among many. <laughs> yeah, we were. You know, I mean, we had this discussion then where I, I felt that you know it, it was like, and, and and Mark, I'm sure you'll 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 chime in with me on this one. It was like sort of an airline bragging about its safety record. You don't do that because you're only as good. You're only as good, and you're only as safe as your last flight. And you you just don't. You just that just doesn't work. So uh, it, for them to brag about you know you know the error of Soyuz and the error of reliability, it's it's has not been the error of reliability in my opinion. It, it's I look at the proton. Failures we've had. Look, look at look at the the booster. Some of the other booster failures we've had. We had uh, Peggy Whitson's wild ride in Soyuz. Hopefully that won't happen ever happen again. Um, but uh, you know, again, I I I can count you know numerous issues that we've had with 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 Roscosmos as a sole provider, and that's the frightening part. I don't want to go ahead and risk access to space on just one sole provider. I completely and totally agree, but we've been talking about this for years, and unfortunately it hasn't changed. But, I mean, there is now the Soyuz MS, which is the updated version of the Soyuz. It's no longer the TMA, but, you know, that's all digital, and we'll see how the return goes with that. It is only launched. It has not returned yet. Uh, but, again, commercial crew has a lot of potential in it, and I think NASA is going to have to address these issues before commercial crew flies of how we're going to keep this space station crewed and how we're going to keep commercial crew safe because we want this to be nasa not malaysian air yeah i mean i mean <laughs> that's you know I, it, it that was a you know kind of colloquially expressed but essentially correct uh we don't want issue we don't want to have a, a an issue here but Sawyer, you, you kind of touched on something a little bit that just reminded me here we're not just talking about nasa i'm sure once and and mark you pointed this out too iss isn't forever so we want to go ahead and and get commercial providers going in low Earth orbit. We want to get a low Earth orbit 
industry going. And the only way to do that is to get these stations up there and going. It's folks like Robert Bigelow that are going to go ahead and get their expandable modules up there. It's folks like Orbital ATK. It's folks like Lockheed Martin that have also got their their contracts going that possibly may be able to provide um, orbital uh, uh, science platforms for people that want to run experiments. And yes, it's going to require taxis to get back and forth. And this is the business that Boeing and SpaceX could be involved in is getting you know university students back and forth to space think about that for a minute where they are they are performing their own experiments they are they are doing their own you know they're they're doing their own si- hands-on science while in microgravity conditions these these are the things we want to go ahead and these are the opportunities we want to want to bring up so yeah the the safety of these two two vehicles is is absolutely paramount but we also want to make sure that they're able to do the job and do it on time because we also want to make sure that we have an uninterrupted uh, increment access to the International Space Station right now currently. So we don't have much time left, but I do want to discuss one more thing very similar to that, and that was a review of another spacecraft that we're looking at, and that is Orion. After the request from Congress, the nonpartisan U.S. Government Accountability Office, the good old GAO, released a 56-page report basically destroying Orion. And yes, I am exaggerating, but they were very hypercritical of where the project currently is. They compared it. To the James Webb Space Telescope with its budgetary problems and time problems, and also to Constellation. Well, there's a name from the past, huh? That went so well. They talked about not quite following best practices. They talked about not just NASA, but a lot of its contractors that were giving incorrect numbers, such as uh, Lockheed Martin. They have been going with cost overruns. The European Space Agency has had cost overruns as well as major delays. In fact, many of them have had problems. Contractors, ESA, NASA, all of these delays. Uh, All of this summed up best in one thing that they pointed out, and that is the fact that they are planning to fly this manned in 2023. That is 17 years to design and develop before flying its first crewed mission. Let's take that same time span and move it to 1964. So from 1964, 17 years, about 1981. In that time, we flew to the Gemini spacecraft. We designed, we developed, and flew Apollo, landed on the moon. We had a space station, Skylab. We had the Apollo-Soyuz test project. And then we designed, developed, and flew the space shuttle. All in that time span that it has taken us to develop one vehicle. And yes, I can understand it's going out. It's going further than Apollo did even. And they have to plan for that. But 17 years to design and develop something. Even James Webb, which is a bit behind, has only been taking 10 years. And that's scheduled to launch in 2018. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate just for a minute. Go ahead. Uh, the the time, yes, indeed, we had three major programs in what eight year in in an eight year span of time: Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. And Apollo executed the lunar landing. What was NASA's budget? You know, 
adjusting for inflation and all that, what were they getting for a budget during Apollo? It yeah, well, it, even in Mercury and Gemini, it was one to two percent. By Apollo, at one point, it was getting over four percent of the national budget, which now we are at zero point four percent. That's again, we're talking about building a you know a Saturn V like vehicle, which essentially is a space launch system. We're talking about you know building Apollo on steroids, which is essentially Orion, but we're talking about building both on a shoestring. So if I'm I'm going to again play devil's advocate with the with the general accounting office here, and say. Guys, if you really want to go ahead and and point the ugly light, yeah, their cost overruns this, that, and the other thing. But do you want to really point the ugly light? Point it on yourself, because you've been very, very restrictive. Or should I, you know, point it on 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 Congress and all that. They've been extraordinarily restrictive on the budget. We NASA's budget right now is is about as you said, point four or or zero point five somewhere in that range of the uh of of the of the national budget it is getting less than half a penny back during apollo it was four percent of the national budget if you gave nasa that money i'm sure a lot of the stuff would go probably go away and you wouldn't have a lot of the you may not have a lot of the delays that you have nasa is trying to work with this and they're trying to build some sophisticated uh spacecraft and build sophisticated boosters even though if you know SLS has had some you know it had had its detractors saying it's it's based on old technology and the reason why is again NASA's had to work with this thing on a shoestring had NASA had the 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 funding to to build something you know brandy dandy new I'm sure they would go ahead and do it but we don't have that budget you know, when you've only got less than half a penny to you know for every tax dollar brought in, you can't do a lot of the spectacular stuff. And by the way, your portfolio is not just with SLS. It's also with commercial crew. It's with planetary missions. It's with, you know, climate science here back back here on Earth. It's, I do it's have to point something out. I do have to point something out with these numbers, though, is that NASA in its estimate said that they were estimating to spend $16 billion to ready Orion for its first flight, which in NASA numbers isn't terrible. But according to the GAO review, they did not find any of the cost numbers to be reliable that NASA was giving them and that contractors were giving them. They were having problems verifying where they were getting these numbers from. And I do also have to correct that James Webb has been taking 20 years. It was scheduled to take 10, just to make a correction there. But, you know, yeah, they're over budget, but they don't even know by how much. They have their launch date scheduled for 2023, but even the review has said that they're expecting that to slip by at least another six months. So the problem is not just, yeah, we're giving them not that much money to do it, but at the same time, NASA saying, here's how much it's going to cost. Oh, actually, we were wrong with our numbers. All of our numbers have been wrong. Launch dates, costs, which, I mean... I'm hoping that this still comes through because the last time the GAO did a major one back in 2009, well, then President Obama came in and there went Constellation. Yeah, and we're at that cusp again, which is uh-huh. really, which has really got me kind of kind of concerned. 
Um, I, I'm, and I'm not too sure what any one of these two individuals that are currently running for the highest office in the United States are would be able to do with this program. And they've been very, very, how should I say, um, close to the vest as far as what their intentions are, uh, one more, more so than the other. Uh, both, but both candidates have been very enigmatic as far as what they want to do with um, with spaceflight. So uh, again, maybe these these numbers are murky for a reason. I don't know. Um, I, I do know that that what the GAO had recommended, and and Sawyer, I'm going to read directly from the uh, uh, one of the the short version of the recommendations here. Uh, quote, the GAO recommends that NASA should evaluate cost and schedule reserves as part of its integrated design review for the first test flight in order to maximize all remaining costs and schedule reserves. NASA concurred with the GAO recommendation. So NASA knows they've got a problem, and they they agree with that, that particular piece. So it, it should be interesting to see what they're going to do going forward. Yes, very much so. And again, don't just take our word for what we're saying. Form your own opinion. The best way to do that is to read the report. It's only 56 pages. Most of it is in English, at least readable. Uh, It's pretty well laid out. So if you get a chance to go on to gao.gov, take a look at that. We'll see if we can link the actual report in the show notes so you can take a look at the PDF, read all of what they had to say on it, and form your own opinion and let us know. Send us a message at mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com, tweet us at Talking Space, or post it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Talking Space, or Google Plus, too. We check all of them now, so go ahead and send us your thoughts on what you think is the current status of this, if you think it's going to fly on time, what do you think about the budget, and what you think about the GAO report. We're going to be covering what all the candidates say about space later in the year as we get closer to November. I can promise you that. We're going to have a lot to say on that topic, and that will relate directly back to this. But for right now, though, that is going to conclude this episode. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thanks, Sawyer. And I'm just going to go ahead and give a shout-out to the Lowell Observatory. They've got a Kickstarter going to go ahead and restore the uh, – uh, the telescope that uh, Percival Lowell used to find Pluto. So go ahead and check that Kickstarter out. Uh, if you're so inclined, it'll be open for another 16 days. And don't forget the Perseids that peak on the 11th and 12th coming up. So uh, go ahead, go outside, look up, and enjoy the show. It's going to be magnificent this year. Oh, yeah, it's supposed to be over 200 an hour in some spots. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. See you all next time. And we thank you for joining us once again. We will plan to be back to our normal schedule for the rest of the year. Plan being the keyword. We hope you'll stick with us, and we thank you for sticking with us now. Until then, though, we've got a lot of great stuff coming up. We'll be covering a whole bunch of launches. We hope you'll listen to them. Again, until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.